Let's pray together. Our Lord and Father, we approach you the only way that we can, and that is with humility through your Son, Jesus Christ. You are perfect in all of your ways, and you are whole on your own. You have no need to be taught anything. You don't need updating, correction, or to be made relevant to a certain day or age or location. You are supreme over every evening and morning. So Lord, we give up our resistance. We set aside every argument we have with you. We are your creation and we give back to you what is rightly yours. We consecrate our words, our actions, our time, and our attention. Because when we keep these things for ourselves and our own devices, we steal from you and we set ourselves up as ruler of our lives. So Lord, help us and have mercy because we are susceptible to deception. Our old nature and the world around us unite to persuade us that you are not good or that this life is all there is or that we are owed comfort. Father, strengthen our faith. Keep us close to you and to each other so that we would not fall prey to delusion. Help us to remember that we have been redeemed from a real and immediate king kingdom of darkness so that we would not dare to dabble in idolatry and rebellion. Lord, we trust that when we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Holy Spirit, break open our hearts even now so we would not let any sin or self-righteousness take root. Let us not be disqualified by hardness of heart. Lord, we come to you as your adopted children, brought into a family with brothers and sisters around the world. And we thank you and pray that all would be built up into Christ. We specifically pray for Edgewood Bible Church in Edgewood, Washington. Thank you for the opportunity that we had to bless them by sharing Kelton Hedstrom with them at their youth camp. Lord, we know that your wisdom and his love for you were on display and your children were fed a spiritual banquet. We ask that there would be fruit from his time there for years and generations to come. We pray for First Baptist Church in Salem. And just as Paul prayed for the Colossian church, we ask that they would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of you, pleasing you, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of you. We pray for their pastors and staff, that you would give them a great love for the people that you have tasked them to shepherd. We pray all of these same things for ourselves. Let the teaching of your word and the shepherding done here produce fruit in the lives of the people in this room and in each of the children's classes and in each of the yet-to-be-born children that you are knitting together in this church. In the proclamation of Christ's redemptive death and resurrection, remind us of our true hope that is sure and secure. Remind us that our lives are hidden with Christ in you, and nothing can compare to the glory that awaits us. Bless our brother Nick and open our hearts as he brings us the spiritual food that you have prepared for us. We ask all of these things with confidence because we know that they are in accordance with your will and the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. 
If you have a, a Bible with you this morning or one of the notebooks that we hand out as a church, we will find ourselves this morning in Colossians chapter 3. So feel free to turn there with me if you would. Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> there are a couple of uh, games that I'm pretty sure all kids played growing up, or that most adults at least have taught them to play. The first is taking an object and hiding it, and the seeker then goes around the room, and that object could be anything from something, usually something small that's easy to hit, to be hidden. Then as kids, we would enter the room, uh, and it would be a game of hot and cold, right? The closer you get to the object, the hotter you are. Using verbal cues, we would attempt to find this object based on our proximity to it. If you were in a group of people, you obviously were listening to what other, where others were at in the room, so you could dart in front of them to grab the, the prize before they could reach it. At least that's what I did. Those who were better at listening and applying did better at finding the object. Now, the second game is similar, but a little bit different. It's hide and seek, right? You hide yourself. Right? Using no verbal cues, usually uh, the darker the better, the quieter the better, you want to be hidden. Even in hide-and-seek, few want to be the seeker and most want to be the hider. Th these games intrigue us. They present a mystery. There is an object that needs to be found, and if you play hide-and-seek in the dark, there's some urgency, right? It's kind of scary, it's kind of intense. Maybe I'm standing right next to them and they'll end up scaring me. There is much thought that goes into that game. Today in our text, in Colossians chapter 3, we are going to see Paul connect the deep theology that we've been pondering and looking at in the first two chapters of Colossians with the practical life that we live as we enter the second half of this book. Last week, we saw a, a wonderful picture from the end of chapter 2 of, of how our reality of our union with Christ plays out in our real world. We do not have to please God through shadows of worship, but, but through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the flesh can be killed. The religious practices of the Old Testament and, and any religious practice on its own, is insufficient in mortifying the flesh. This week, in chapter 3, 1 through 4, is where we find ourselves. Paul continues to make that point, to illustrate that point, and to drive it home. What we will see this week is that our lives here on earth are not the point. For those who are in Christ, we are already alive and living in an alternate reality. If you are a note taker, here is the big idea. Death to sin brings eternal life in Christ. And you could capitalize, underline, and circle in in that. Death to sin brings eternal life in Christ. So as we read our text this morning and contemplate it, think about it, I'd like to ask you a question. How does the reality of your new life in Christ affect the events of your current life? How does the reality of your new life in Christ affect the 
events of your current life. Let's look now and read together Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If, then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What we see in these four verses is a rich, deep dive into the reality that is our Christian life. Paul's argument here flows from the first two chapters of the book. Jesus Christ is the supreme ruler of the universe. And he got into that position through dying on the cross and rising again. He is God in the flesh. The power that he displayed shamed the rulers of this world. And we have no need to participate in the worship of things that are a shadow of Christ. Uh, something that points towards him. In typical Paul fashion, the first half of his letters are, are a deep theological dive. And, and the second half are, are uh, okay, how does this affect you? Like, all of this is true in reality. Now, now, what does that mean for you in your life? We are entering into that portion of the book. Paul builds the walls in the first half uh, on the supremacy of Jesus Christ and now starts to explain what does that mean for your life as a Christian, for the church in Colossae, but also for the church in Salem, Oregon, for the Christian in Salem. These four verses are theologically rich and dense, but that theology isn't supposed to cloud what should be taking place in our hearts. The truths that we see in this text uh, are a call for us all to respond, to respond to the reality that we cannot see with our eyes. So as we contemplate this reality that is communicated here in these verses, we can't leave and we ought not leave unaffected by it. This call, this, these, this theology is a call to have a changed life, to have a changed perspective. It ought to evoke life-changing action in each of us, Amen. for it is a call to faith. Amen. What we're going to see is that uh, we ought to pursue, ponder, and anticipate Jesus Christ. We ought to pursue ponder, and anticipate Jesus Christ. You're going to be able to, if you didn't get all of them, they're going to be up on the screen as we proceed. So let's look again at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The, the transition verse, the if, looks back on what was previously stated and gives us the first of two commands that we have in our text. There's two commands in this text. If you have been raised with Christ, if you have been united with him in resurrection, as, the, as verse 13 of chapter 2 argues, if you have been made alive, seek the things that are above, 
where Jesus Christ sits at God's right hand. Paul is using an if-then logic. If this is true, then do this. If this is what you believe, then it should produce an action. The church in Colossae, they were tempted to be drawn away. They were tempted to be drawn away, as we've seen, from the true gospel, the gospel uh, of Jesus, to pursue Jewish myths and customs. These myths and customs were shadows of the real gospel. And Paul's command, instead of seeking after and finding those myths, those shadows of the past, is to pursue and seek a new reality. This seeking or pursuit isn't a, a heavenly gaze, right, where you get a kink in your neck and you're always just looking towards heaven, right? Instead, we are to pursue what is above, in the same place where Jesus Christ is. He is seated at the right hand of God. This is a position of power and of rest. It is a position of power and of rest. The finished work, Jesus, his finished work, and he is now seated with God in heaven. We looked at this verse last week, and it's so helpful for even us again. Hebrews 1.3 he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus' work was complete, and his position of power was attained. Our job, the life of a, a Christian, is to pursue that heavenly reality. To live under the reign of Jesus Christ as King. To live knowing that the work of God has been accomplished. There is no, nothing more to do. Jesus is seated. He is ruling and reigning. While Jesus was here on earth, he told his followers that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a very popular phrase in Matthew especially, that the kingdom of heaven was, was at hand. It was near. It was at their fingertips. It was coming soon. What happened on the cross was that Jesus instituted that kingdom, right? His victory over sin and death and is now ruling and reigning as king. But we live in an already but not yet, right? So Jesus is seated and ruling and reigning, we know that's true, but we're also promised more. There's more to come. So we live in this tension of, yes, we know this truth, we know this reality, but it is not yet fully realized. Our lives then are consumed with the here and now. They are consumed with what our senses tell us is real. Right? What can I see? And What can I hear? What can I touch and taste. The kingdom of God isn't always something that our senses define for us as a reality. The clearest picture of the kingdom of heaven that we get is the gathering of the church on a regular weekly basis. So Jesus highlights this in Luke 17, 21. Jesus tells the Pharisees of this reality, nor will people say, 
look, here it is, or there it is. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Where do we see the kingdom of heaven right now? Where is God ruling and reigning supreme? Well, all over the world, but specifically in the church. This is why the church is so important to God. This is why it is so important that we live as obedient citizens under his rule and reign. The kingdom of heaven isn't an alternate reality like like the multiverse, where where the characters know it exists and they're just trying to find their way into it. No, the kingdom of heaven is a present reality. It is here and now. It is already among us. We need to pursue Jesus, right? Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and is currently ruling and reigning. He is seated at the right hand of God and has been glorified. No matter who you are, the reality is he's ruling and reigning, seated at the right hand of God. And as he rules, he intercedes for us as high priest. And as our high priest, he is able to go before God on behalf of us, on behalf of his people as the atoning sacrifice. That's why in the church in Colossae, it wasn't helpful to pursue the shadows because they had the real thing. They had the real thing. When a couple begins dating, there is this uh, pursuit that takes place. Right? Come hell or high water, there is nothing that can prevent them from hanging out. Right? There's nothing. They are pursuing one another. There's constant gifts exchanged, romantic ideologies, and love is in the air. They seek out each other's affection uh, and are passionate about their relationship. A few years down the road, that passion begins to die down. Right? The cares of this life Careers, children, finances all begin to crowd out that pursuit. A healthy marriage then includes the pursuit of the other spouse, seeking them out, paying attention to them. How similar is that to what we see here in Colossians? Right? The cares of this life crowd out the kingdom of God. Right? They can feel and be non-existent in our view. It is easy to forget about seeking Christ. We, can, we can't see him, right, in our day-to-day. We can't hear him or touch him, which is, once again, why it's important to spend time in God's word and to be among the people of God where we get that. To be obedient to this command that we see here in Colossians is to seek the things that are above. We must be constantly reminded about this spiritual reality. It should be this truth, this reality that informs our lives today. Where once we were dead in our sins and trespasses, Jesus Christ has raised us to life. His life, his victory is our victory. We have been united with him. We are no longer We no longer act like dead people doing dead people things, right? The zombie corpses that once we walked around in are now filled with authentic, genuine life. We are to be pursuing the things then that living people do, sitting at dining room tables and eating proper meals, 
not like zombies. Our lives present a, a variety of circumstances that distract us from seeking the things in heaven, from looking to God's right hand. A variety of circumstances. Unique ones that we each face. But in areas of obedience, when we're tempted to look for something else, we ought to ask, what does my king require of me? This will help orient our heart to obey the commands of Jesus Christ to love God and love others. Not only what what does my king require of me, but my king is seated at God's right hand. He is ruling and reigning, and I ought to obey, and I want to obey. When facing the temptation to sin, no matter what it is, step away. Remind yourself of this question. When you're struggling with the guilt and shame or or, or the burden of other people's pains, remind yourself that there is a sympathetic high priest who is seated at God's right hand, who advocates for his people, who understands them. Throw yourself at his feet, trusting in his good and gracious sovereign plan. For the Christian, Jesus seated at the right hand of God changes everything. So what is it that you are seeking? What is it that characterizes the pursuit of your life? Right? There's things that we have to do, right? Like work a job, right? To pay our bills, to be faithful. But that does that define you? Does that characterize the pursuit of your life? Does that consume you? The command that we have from Paul through all of life, seek the things that are in heaven. Value what heaven values. Seek the kingdom of God first, right? Jesus Christ is king and priest, and these are a new reality. This isn't an idea simply to understand, but but it is a reality that we presently live in. Though we can't fully see it, we must set our minds onto it. We must ponder it. And this is the second and final command that we see Paul give to the church in verse 2 to ponder this reality. Let's read verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. This second verse continues with the same thing that, of what John Calvin describes as calling us upward. Like us, the church in Colossae had much calling for their attention. The call of the world, the call of the flesh, was a part of their life. Even specifically for the church in Colossae, it was Jewish asceticism, right? Righteousness found, pursuing God found through Jewish law and customs. To look back to the past, to the the things of the earth, Paul calls them instead to focus their realities on heaven. There, there is a new mindset that Paul is wanting the church to grab a hold of, a different mindset that Paul is wanting the church, Christians, to grab a hold of. Our minds are supposed to be focused 
not on earth, but on the realities of heaven. Towards our reality that Jesus Christ reigns, it isn't supposed to, uh, it isn't just supposed to be our pursuit, it is supposed to be on the front of our thinking, day in and day out. In fact, one could argue that before you can pursue it, you must recognize it. The Greek word for mind here denotes uh, thinking that unites oneself to another. It's all wrapped up in the Greek word for, for mind. It's thinking that, that, that is uniting yourself to another. It isn't a soft meditation or pondering. It is of being one mind, united in thought. Being so heavenly minded that your thoughts, the way you think about life, is how God thinks about it. We call it being scriptural, but it's being united with God in his thoughts. We ought not then, though, to be so detached from reality, right? Where we are walking around unable to relate with people because we're out of touch about what is going on, right? That's not what is being described here. Instead, our, mind sh- our mindset should be so united with God that we view the events of, our wor- of this world and our lives how he views them. That we are pursuing obedience to the things that he calls and commands of us. And that is of first priority in our thinking. Jesus gives us a a decently clear picture of what this looks like in Matthew 16, 21 through 23. A very, um, I I think, well-known passage. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter, or he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Very, very clear. Peter, you're not doing what you ought to be doing. There's a lot going on in this passage that we don't have time to get into. But Jesus levied a a charge against Peter. You, Peter, are not setting your mind on the things of God. What was Peter's mindset? It was set on the world. It was set on the temporal. What must, what must he do? What, was, what must Jesus even do in this text? Well, verse 21, he has to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And this reality was disturbing to Peter. I mean, he's a good friend, right? I don't want the, you don't need to do that. Peter was not, though, focused on the plan of God. That was the problem. Peter, your, your focus is on this world and your problem of me dying is what Jesus is saying. Friend, your life in Christ is demonstrated through your obedience to the plan of God. You can only obey if your mind is set on the things of heaven. Obedience, we wouldn't know how to obey if we didn't ponder who God is and set our mind on him. 
on being an obedient follower of the risen king. This is a path that Jesus walked. This is the path of sacrifice, of death, of hardship. Obedience is not easy. It takes great faith to pursue the things of God. Our minds and our affections ought to be set on a reality that we cannot visibly see today. But we can know to be true and we can catch glimpses of in the church. We live a life of faith. The world and our flesh demand that we focus on it, we focus on ourselves. Right? Hedonism is an ever-present reality in each of our lives. We naturally gravitate towards it, right? It's easy to think about me, of thinking about what is best for us, what is easiest for us. After all, it is, it is here, right? I can sense it. It's part of my senses. It is gratifying. But it isn't what is on earth that ultimately saves us. It isn't on earth that our lives find their ultimate meaning. This is what being a Christian means. Being a Christian means living a life that focuses your energy, your purpose, and your passions on what God commands. So if you profess to be a Christian, I would challenge you, does your life look like this? Are you even remotely interested in valuing what the God of heaven values? Do you spend time pondering or meditating or thinking of the commands of God and discerning your own obedience to them? What God values, we ought to value as well. If God calls us to it, then we ought to do it. This is far more This passage in Colossians is far more than just deep theological truth. It is for us, even in the here and now. It is life-changing, life-altering reality. Setting our minds on things above is far more than thinking about a big, big house with a, a big, big yard where we can play football. I mean, as nice as that sounds, that's not it. And I'm sorry if you're under 25 and you don't know that song, but sorry, maybe. Here in Colossians 3, it is a command, right, that we must obey today. What does obedience look like in the midst of a marriage conflict, right? What should we set our minds on? Being right? If we focus on the things of earth, we immediately look to justify ourselves, to make ourselves look righteous instead of serving our spouse. In the middle of a a parenting your child who is being difficult, earthly justification looks like responding in anger or not even responding at all and letting them call the shots. What does setting your mind on the things of heaven look like? Well, it looks like putting yourself and them, orienting them towards the things of God. Not our momentary comfort. What about in the middle of your discipleship group with others from church, right? Where where we, we share our struggles with life, but are we willing 
to point people towards the things of God, towards obedience? Are we willing to help orient their mind and their heart as we do the same for ourselves? In the normal ins and outs of life, set your mind on things above. Focus your attention and your affection on the things of God. Paul is going to uh, unpack this as we progress in this chapter. Uh, Perhaps we get a good view of what it looks like to be heavenly-minded through the prayer of Jesus in Matthew 6, 9 through 10. Our, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the pursuit of the Christian life? To see God's kingdom made known to the world around. This means that our lives then begin to reflect our own heavenly mindedness. There's an old phrase uh, that a Christian can be so heavenly minded they are of no earthly good, right? Sort of a, a, another cultural reference, a Ned Flanders, right? Kind of happy-go-lucky but quirky. This is the opposite of what Scripture paints for us. We are not to be of so, so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. No, we're of great earthly good. That we ought to be a part of the, this uh, a reflection of the God who reigns in heaven as we ponder our realities there. That the world ought to then reflect the glory of God and heaven is our ultimate prize. What a day that will be when heaven is no longer something that we just set our minds on, but is a reality that we can sense with our full senses. Where our physical future resides. And this is, as Paul closes this portion of verses, what we can anticipate together. We can anticipate this together. Let's read verses three through four. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. How does one seek the things that are above? How does one live a life with their mind set on Jesus Christ? Verses 3 through 4 answer that for us. Our lives have been hidden with Christ through his death and resurrection. When he returns, our real lives will be fully known. These two verses are filled with language that indicates a reality that isn't yet fully known. We have died, and that death has brought us into a new life with Christ in God. His death, life, and resurrection are ours now and will continue to be in a more full reality. The church there in Colossae was seeking Jewish mysticism as a means of being connected to God, right? Their hyper-spirituality of being like, I can just do these things. I can be close to God. But why? 
They were content to look for God in the shadows. But Paul is telling them it isn't in the shadows that God is found. It is in this new reality that they are in Christ. Why participate in old customs and ceremonies when you have something better to enjoy today? These verses here in Colossians are what theologians call union with Christ. Our union with Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and mainly even these two verses of 3 and 4, are an expanded uh, or are expanded on in Romans chapter 6. We heard a little bit uh, from Romans earlier, but if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn there now. Romans chapter 6. Let's take a look at, at uh, a more full view of what we are seeing here in Colossians 3. Romans chapter 6, verses 3. We're going to look at verses um, 3 through 8. A little bit of overlap with what we heard a little while ago. All right. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You hear the, the similarities? And Romans, the chapter, the whole chapter of chapter 6 of Romans is a more expanded version, a more expanded um, deep dive into what we are looking at in Colossians. Turning from sin and to Christ, then, isn't a peaceful thing, right? It, it involves death. It involves dying. It is violent. Something in us must go away. It must die. Something in us has to be cut away. To be in Christ means that we have died to our sin. Now, is it ultimately our death? No, it is Christ's death. The death that we see here is, it is a violent death. It is unpleasant. We are going to be getting into this even more in the next portion of Colossians chapter 3. But this is why the battle against sin is so exhausting. It involves dying. It brings the body to nothingness. It leaves one feeling stretched out and thin. It is a full-on letting go of the life that you presently have and maybe at some level enjoy. It is letting go of it. It is realizing that it is actually distasteful. That sin does not please God and cutting it out. A letting go of what is promised through the flesh, instant gratification, peace in the here and now. But that death, the death that we die in Christ, once at salvation but then progressively through our sanctification, 
isn't without hope. Verse 8 is clear. If we have died, then we also live. To, to grow in our knowledge of who we are in Christ, right? To, we must first have an accurate view of who we are outside of him. Who we are without him in our life. The, the, the sin, the death, the rebellion that we naturally gravitate towards, that we naturally find ourselves living in. Our union with Christ, our being united with him, means that we die in him and we live in him and we will one day reign with him. We die to our sins and we live in Christ. Death and life, or death is the life of a Christian. This is a hidden reality that is not yet fully realized, but for those of us who are saved, we know it to be true. We know and have experienced that death. Jesus is not meant to be a tag-along with us, somebody that we kind of put in our backpack and pull out on when we um, need it. He isn't a piece of luggage that, that we pull along. No, he, we are united with him in his life and, and death. He is supposed to be who we are, our identity. The fight against sin, while hard and exhausting, the result is eternal life. Back in Colossians 3, verse 4, the promise is that we will appear with him in glory. In the present, we live a sort of secret life, one that cannot be seen, is not visible. It is invisible to the natural eye. We no longer must be good enough on our own. We no longer need to please God through ritualistic practices that are, that are just shadows of a, a coming reality. No, we have Jesus. We are in him. Another analogy to kind of drive this home, uh, marriage is once again a great picture of this, right? When a, marri a couple is married, we are told that they are united together in one flesh. Well, how? I mean, they're still two separate people, but in some mysterious way, the Bible is clear that God has ordained them as one. Now, we signify this in our culture through the sharing of a last name, um, oftentimes through the sharing of a bank account, and other ways, right? It's not my car and her car, it's our car. We pick up on this in our culture. This is a, a reality that we cannot see, but we can experience. We know. And as, as the marriage grows in time and, and in health, through pains and trials and, and sufferings, the spouse, both spouses' lives continue to be knit together, right? A, a life shared together that is growing in intimacy is a growing, is a reflection of the church's union with Christ, of the Christian's union with Jesus. The Christian is connected and inside and part of the actual source of life. We have life flowing through us. John 15, 1, 
Jesus says that he is the vine and his followers are the branches. Let me, let, let's read that together. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We, like the church in Colossae, must realize that the key to our union with Jesus isn't working harder to be closer. The, the key to our union with Christ isn't looking into the past for um, you know, mysticism or asceticism. or No, the key to understanding our union with Christ is pondering it. And as Jesus encourages in John 15, abiding. It is about abiding. It is setting our minds on heaven, seeking the things that are above and walking faithfully, all while resting, right? The idea of abiding, resting in the reality that our life is secured in and through Jesus Christ. That's it. The life of a Christian is secured in and through Jesus Christ. Our responsibility, our job, is to seek the things that are in heaven and set our minds on them and rest in the finished work of Christ. And so as we close, I, I, ask, I ask the question at the beginning. How does the reality of your life affect, of your life in Christ, affect the events of your current life? How does the reality of your life in Christ affect the events of your current life? This is a question that we all can continue and should give space to think about to pursue, to ponder, to give attention to our spiritual reality, our life here will begin, will begin to reflect that of our saviors as we become more and more like him, living in that new reality. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the life that you have given to us. Life that is in and through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that we, that I would be faithful to ponder that this week, to rest in it, and to walk obediently. Lord, I just pray that we as a church would reflect it more and more as we uh, are, are unified together, that we are of one mind in our pursuit of you and, and what you call us to. Lord, we pray all of this and ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.